Good morning, everyone. My name is Nayaswami Diksha, and this is Nayaswami Gandev. And we like to welcome all of you to Sunday service. We also like to welcome especially newcomers, people who are here for the first time, our guests at the Expanding Light, and those who are watching us online. Jesus Christ said in chapter 10 of the Gospel of St. John, All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Many Christians, not surprisingly, quote this saying in condemnation of other spiritual teachers. Not only the Old Testament prophets, but also Buddha, Krishna, and others who lived before Jesus, as well as, by inference, any who came after him. Yet Jesus himself said in St. Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Nowhere do we find Jesus condemning or even gently criticizing other spiritual masters. His criticisms were reserved for worldly attitudes and for those hypocritical Pharisees who had allowed religion to become, for them, a pretense. Parmansi Yogananda explained that the expression, all that ever came before me, referred to those spiritual teachers who placed their egos and their self-importance ahead of the Christ consciousness, in the sense of drawing people's devotion to themselves and not offering it where alone it truly belongs, to God. Yogananda himself was very firm in this regard. For example, he never spoke of anyone as his disciple. Instead, he always insisted they are God's disciples. God is the guru, not I. Ego is a way station on the soul's journey toward enlightenment. The soul is first trapped in lower bodily forms. Slowly, it evolves to the human level, at which point self-consciousness appears. Only in human form can self-consciousness transcend material form altogether including the lower identity of ego consciousness, and discover the true divine self within. Self-consciousness manifested as ego is an incentive to deliberate self-improvement. Later in this process of development, however, the ego becomes an an obstruction. Inevitably, new spiritual aspirants do not emerge effortlessly from the vortex of ego consciousness. Desire must be offered up resolutely and ever more wholeheartedly on the altar of infinity. It is a gradual process, and few, even among those who seek to help others, are free of ego. If, however, their motive in teaching is not to serve, but to be served, they deserve a severe reprimand, as Jesus gave them. For their direction of development is no longer upward, but downward. In the name of giving up desires, they are creating new ones. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter, desire obscures even the wisdom of the wise. Their relentless foe it is, a flame never quenched. Intellect, mind, and senses, these combined are referred to as the seat of desire. Desire through them deludes and eclipses the discrimination of the embodied soul. O Arjuna, discipline your senses, and having done so, work to destroy desire, annihilator of wisdom and of self-realization. 
Give God the credit for everything you do. See him as the true doer. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. I'd like to share a brief selection from Whispers from Eternity collection of prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. This one, demand for fervor in divine love. Teach me, O Spirit, to love thee as wholeheartedly as the miser loves money. Make me as attached to thee as the drunkard is addicted to wine. Teach me to cling to thee as erring ones do to their bad habits. Teach me to be attentive to thee as a mother is to her child. Teach me to perform my duties diligently with my attention fully riveted on thee. Teach me to love thee as the worldly man loves his possessions. With the first love of true lovers, teach me to love thee. Now as I read this week's um, commentary from the Rays of the One Light, I couldn't help but think back 30 years to Ananda's first pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which Dictionary will be leading the third one in just five weeks now. Um, but it was 30 years ago, we had about 50 people on this pilgrimage, and among them was Swami Kriyananda. And uh, there was one particular episode that touched me very deeply, this was in the city of Nazareth. And uh, we had finished visiting the Basilica of the Annunciation, where traditionally uh, the angels are said to, is said to have come to Mary to uh, tell her what was about to unfold. And we had been there. We were out on the roadway outside the Basilica, waiting for our bus to come pick us up. There's not much parking in Nazareth. <laughs> and uh, so we were all spread out. Uh, spread out along the side of the road. And uh, there are many, there are quite a number of, it's an Arab city, Nazareth is, but there are quite a number of Christians there. And as we were spread out, this one young Arab man uh, came over to, to our group. And for whatever divine reason, he selected one person and one person only to confront. And that was Swami Kriyananda. And he he approached Swami and with all the zeal of the new converts said, do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins? And I just, I just remember thinking, well, two things. My first thought was, oi. Uh, uh, and then before I could even fully form the second thought, which was, I am so glad he's asking Swami instead of me. <laughs> Swami gave his answer, and it was very, such a, such a profound answer, because you could just, afterwards, you could sort of put it together, like, well, Swami didn't want to say no, because he didn't want to hurt this young man's newfound faith. 
And yet he couldn't, in all honesty, say yes, either. So instead, he just cut through the dogma completely. He just said, how could God die? And the young man was sort of taken aback, and his mouth was moving soundlessly a little bit. He just kind of, in a daze, walked away. You know, it, it's, it's so beautiful when that kind of dogma gets cut through, but it gets cut through, not thrown away, but taken to the deeper level from, from which it comes and forcing us to, to think through the things that we believe. You know, that bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really important. Yogananda himself said, you have to, don't, don't take my word for these teachings. He said, test them. That's the only way you're going to know that they're true. And there are many ways to test them. And one of the best ways is just simple common sense. Like that question, for example, how could God die? But I grew up with a master of common sense, my mother. (laughs) My mother was an extremely down-to-earth, practical Uh, live the daily life kind of person. She was not a philosopher at all and very, very high degree of common sense. And yet she grew up in the, she was born in the 19-teens and so she grew up in the 20s and 30s and she had the, many of the sensibilities of those times, perhaps a little bit more than of these times. Uh, For example, she had the utmost respect for doctors and for ministers. And when I was probably eight years old, I think, uh, we had come to live with our family for a year for an exchange student from Indonesia. Now, I grew up in rural Minnesota. And if you want to think of two places that could be much more different, it would be hard to find very much more difference than between Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, and... (laughs) And Indonesia. And this, this young man came to live with us. His name was Jan. And uh, he was uh, instantly, the entire school, the entire town just fell in love with him. He was the most beautiful, beautiful young man. And he was a devout Muslim. And he would uh, do his prayers every day, you know, regular, regular intervals. And he was just uh, the, the sweetest, kindest person that you really were ever going to run across. And as I say, he just captured everyone's hearts. And he would occasionally go to church, the Presbyterian church, along with our uh, mother and uh, her son, her conscripted sons, and to, go to, to go to church. And uh, so the minister of the church got to know him a bit. And... One day, fortunately, when Jan had not gone with us, the minister you know, talked to some of the usual dogma that, that only those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior are going to go to heaven. Everybody else will go to hell. And uh, after service, um, my mother kind of waited, held back a bit, because she wanted to talk to the minister alone. And she went up to him, and she said, do you mean to say that Jan is not going to heaven? And the minister, whom, as I said, she had just the deepest, deepest regard for, 
uh, said, well, uh, that's right, he won't. And, and my mother looked at him and she said, I don't think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it, it continued to deeply embarrass her to the end of her life <laughs> because I would frequently recount that story. <laughs> but it is, you know, to, to break through these things and get back to just plain old common sense and to, to, to Swami's unraveling of this, of this scriptural quotation and take it back from this all whoever came before me or thought are thieves and robbers down to who really are those thieves and robbers that they are our own desires and the Bhagavad Gita is just so direct about that you know, Krishna says destroy desire the annihilator of wisdom. And the problem, of course, is that there's so many of them that I was reading just the other day when uh, an article of Paramahansa Yogananda where he said, I, I used to sit and ponder for hours on end, where do all these desires come from? You know, where is it? Can you imagine that? Just an avatar sitting hours on end just pondering, where do these desires come from? Because He'd so gotten so beyond them. This is like, how could anybody ever get caught in them? He said that I would sort them. I would sort my desires. I would sort, separate the bad ones from the good ones. Of course, the, the bad ones being ones that take us away from God and the good ones that take us toward God. I would, just, I would sort them and I would, I would let go of destroy the, the bad ones and I would focus on the good ones. You think, how? How do you sort your desires? And one of the one of the beauties that I really found in coming to Ananda was rather than having to remember, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, as as is so full, scriptural teaching in general tends to be so full of I always appreciate simplicity. And one of the things that, that I appreciated the most the Swami Kriyananda's encapsulation of how to look at things such as desires. He would just say, ponder, ponder it and think, does this make me feel larger or does this make me feel smaller? Is it expansive is it, or is it contractive? When you get yourself calm away from the emotion of the desire and just feel, does it make me feel bigger? Or smaller, so simple, but it's such a, a beautiful and effective way to to sort through the desires as they we may not be holding a bunch of them in their hands, they more like come to us in a continuous stream and just will I follow this or not? How to decide that? Does it make me feel bigger? Does it make me feel more expanded? Or does it make me feel smaller? You know, I came across a um very interesting story not long ago uh, about a young man who was a, a disciple living in his guru's hermitage. And he was meditating and he was praying and he was serving and he was living the divine life until one day he went to his guru and he said, Guruji, um, I'm not ready for this. 
I really want to have a wife and have a family and, and just experience, experience this world. Please bless me that I can go out and, and have a normal life, and then I'll come back to you. And the guru said, no problem, my child, no problem. You go and do what you need to do with my, with my blessings, find a wife, have a family, and enjoy the pleasures of this world. That's what the young man did. And he went out and he soon found a beautiful wife and they soon had three lovely children and he had a lot of success in business and they became prosperous. After 10 years, there was a knock on the front door and the wife opened the door and here was this old beggar man. And she started to scold him thinking that he was uh, there to just beg for money. But then her husband saw that it was his guru at the door and invited him, lovingly invited him in. And the guru, the guru said, I've come, my child. I've come to take you away from this world of illusions and bring you back to show you the way to God. And uh, the young man said, oh, you are right, Guruji, you are right. But, but I have these young children now, and, and I, I cannot leave. I cannot, my wife wouldn't be able to bear the, the burden of, of taking care of them. Let me stay a while longer and, and just take care of my responsibilities here. And the guru said, no problem, my child. You can, you can stay and, and take care of all your responsibilities, and I'll come back in 10 years. And he departed. Then 10 years he came back. Didn't have to deal with the wife this time. Came in and said, said to the young man, who was getting less young, he said, I've come, my child. I've come to take you away from this world of illusions and show you the way to God. And the man said, you are right, Guruji. You are right. But, but you see, my, my children are are older now, but they're, they're, they're still not finished with their education. And I really need to, to stay longer and, and take care of them. So give me 10 more years. And the guru said, no problem, child. No problem. Stay here and take care of your responsibilities. I'll come back in 10 years. And he came back in 10 years. And, and said to the young man, who was getting less young still, said, said to him, my child, I've come back once again. I see that your children are now grown. It's time to leave this world of illusions and return with me so I can show you the way to God. And his disciple said, you are right, Guruji. But you see, my children are not married yet. And I need, to, I need to stay here and, and marry them off and make sure that they're, they're settled in their new lives together. Then I can come, come and be with you again. So give me just a little more time. Give me seven more years. And the guru said, no problem, my child. Uh, stay here and take care of your responsibilities and I'll come back and actually said 10 more years. I'll come back in 10 years and uh, take you away from this world of illusions. And he departed. In 10 years, he came back. But this time, he saw in front of the house a big bulldog. 
and was obviously guarding the house. And he recognized in that bulldog his disciple. And using his divine vision, he realized that the disciple had died a few years ago and because of his extreme protectiveness of his family had come back in the only way he could come back to protect them. He'd come back as the guard dog. And he put his hand on the dog's head. He said, my child, your attachment to your family and your possessions has caused you to come back lower than the human level to be this dog. Come with me now. Come with me back to the ashram. The dog licked his guru's hands and he said, you are right, Guruji, but you see, you see, my children have many enemies and powerful enemies who are jealous of their, of their wealth and their power. I need to stay here longer to, to protect them. I'm sure it will sort itself out in a, in a few years. Just come back in a few years. Come back in seven years. I'm sure everything will be fine by then. And the guru said, no problem, my child. I'll come back in seven years and take you away from this world of illusions. And it came back in seven years and there was no dog. And he, using his divine vision, he saw that his disciple, the dog, had died and come back this time as a cobra. And the cobra was nestled in a little nook inside the wall of the house guarding the family safe. And the guru saw all the grandchildren walking around the, the house and he called them to him and said, my, child, my children, I want you to do something for me. Inside the house, just to the right of the family safe, there's a cobra curled up in the wall. I want you to go get him and bring it to me. Now don't worry, he will not harm you, I promise. I want, what I want you to do is take a stick with you. I want you to, to break his back and bring him to me. Well, the children were incredulous. A cobra? They went into the house and kind of got behind the wall and said, yes, indeed, there was a cobra there. And they took their stick and they broke the cobra's back and brought the cobra out to the guru. And the guru thanked them and draped the cobra over his shoulder, turned and walked away. <laughs> And he said to the cobra, said, my child, I'm so sorry for hurting you, but there was no other way. You were so attached to this life you had had. You were so attached to your children and your wife and your grandchildren that Maya is so powerful, that it is so subtle, that it makes you think everything is so real. Everything is so important and, and so enduring the only way that I could get you free from this was to put you in this condition and take you away from it all. I will take you back to the ashram now and show you the way to God. And the cobra said, you are right, Guruji. Thank you. You know, the 
of course, the, the, the desires are the things that take us this direction, take us that direction. I came across a very interesting bit of, of psychological research recently that I found fascinating, and I wanted to share it with you. Now, we all know about guilt, right? I all know about guilt, and I'll, although I didn't grow up Catholic, and I'm not Jewish, um, I, did, I did grow up across the street from the Catholic Church, uh, and I married a nice Jewish girl. <laughs> so just by the process of osmosis, I came to uh, something of an understanding of guilt. <laughs> and as we all know, guilt is a very effective mechanism for keeping us from making the same mistake twice, right? We have this desire to do something, we do it, we feel bad about it, guilty about it, and we never do it again, right? <laughs> well, guess what? Wrong. In fact, the opposite is true. Guilt makes you more likely to do it again. Isn't that interesting? Here's why. Think of that thing that you are going to do that you later felt guilty about. The reason you do it is because you think it's going to make you happy, that there is a, an internal wiring in the brain that it's actually dopamine and stuff like that that I won't get into, but you're wired to, make, to think that that is going to make you happy. So you do it. It doesn't make you happy. You feel guilty. You feel bad, right? You feel bad when you feel guilty. That's the problem. Because there's still that wiring inside that says, you may feel bad now, but if you do that, you'll feel better. And so you're likely to do it again. So you do it again, not despite the guilt, but because of the guilt. Isn't that interesting? That, that we... We are, we are wired, uh, if we're not careful, we get wired for our own uh, problems, to create, to create our own problems. And that's why it's so important to sort through, as Yogananda recommended, to sort through our desires and see which of those make us feel larger and which of those feel, make us feel smaller. And how does guilt make us feel? It makes us feel smaller makes us feel smaller. And we want to get out of it. And we feel this excitement about doing something that will make us feel happy instead of small. I got to take a look at it to see, is it really going to make us feel larger or is it going to make us feel smaller still? And when Yogananda said, he said, I sorted through all my desires to separate the bad ones from the good ones. He said, and then almost before I could even follow the good ones, what happened was I followed the best one. He said, I followed my desire for God. And he said, all those other desires, all those other desires got satisfied. They didn't actually necessarily got, get fulfilled outwardly, but the happiness that I thought they would give me, that was mine and much more. You know, like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So to, to focus on that, 
highest desire and let the other desires just get drawn in its wake because they can never last. The happiness they might give us can never, never last. It's the desire for God when that's fulfilled. That's the only, the only lasting happiness that we can ever have. And Yogananda said, nobody can do that for us. Nobody can give us the desire for God. Nobody can, can no, not God, not the guru. Nobody can do it for us. And here's the beautiful part. There's a loophole in the law. And that is that we can pray for it. We can pray for devotion. We can pray for that desire for God that will make us irresistible to God because that's the only thing God wants too is for us to come back. So I want to read once again that whisper from eternity that I started out with and think of it as this prayer to God to help you cultivate that one desire that is more important than all the others. Teach me, O Spirit, to love thee as wholeheartedly as the miser loves money. Make me as attached to thee as the drunkard is addicted to wine. Teach me to cling to thee as erring ones do to their bad habits. Teach me to be as attentive to thee as a mother is to her child. Teach me to perform my duties diligently with my attention fully riveted on thee. Teach me to love thee as the worldly man loves his possessions. With the first love of true lovers, teach me to love thee. Om Shanti Shanti. Thank you.